It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to the Country Farm Magazine podcast. We've been putting together another exciting issue this month, and despite the miserable weather, we've all had a chance to get out and about in the countryside. For our cover story, I went up to a very wet and muddy farm in Cheshire to catch up with the busiest man in showbiz, Matt Baker. I wanted to find out how he trained his lovely sheepdogs Meg and Lace. So I've got a high jump pole off, and I put a tennis ball on the end of it, and, I, and she was running to try and grab the end of the tennis ball as I would swing around. We sent Country Farm presenter Jules Hudson into the wilds of Worcestershire to meet native skills expert James Watson and learn how our prehistoric ancestors made tools out of flint. If you strike a piece of flint, that, you know, that noise, that noise would have been heard in camps for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And while Tim and I were being buffed about on a windy, muddy Cheshire farm and Jules Hudson was huddling round a campfire... Editorial assistant Abigail White drew the long straw and tucked into seven prize desserts at the infamous Pudding Club in the Cotswolds, a self-proclaimed medieval banquet with custard. We are trying to have our dinner, but we are also thinking of the seven puddings we have to try. And quite frankly, it's rather daunting. I'm actually a bit frightened. I think if we weren't doing a hike tomorrow, I wouldn't have liked to come to the pudding evening because I'd have felt so guilty eating seven puddings in a row. And more from Abigail, Jules and Matt later. But first, Joe and Abigail from the Country Farm Magazine team are here to tell you a little bit more about the March issue. Great Days Out this month focused on prehistoric Britain, with our guide to the country's best stone circles, barrows and hill forts. Julia Bradbury experienced the wild beauty of the Peak District when she joined an archaeological dig at a Bronze Age hill fort called Finn Cop. 
Lucy Gilmore put together an ultimate guide to the wind-battered ancient tombs, monoliths and stone circles of the heart of Neolithic Orkney. And David Hughes discovered a subterranean wonderland of rock sculptures and caverns when he pulled together a feature on Britain's most exciting caves. Neil Coates explored an area that I know well, the borderland between England and Wales known as the Welsh Marches. Well, I've lived in Herefordshire and the Welsh Marches since I was 14 and I've always seen it as a very tranquil, bucolic landscape and I had no idea it had such a bloody past and that for centuries this land of cider orchards and sleepy cattle and valleys were rife with bloody battles and sieges. But first our cover story on Matt Baker. Now most of you may know Matt from his, his role on Countryfile where he's been presenting the show for about two years. But recently, before Christmas, he had... Well, enormous success on the Strictly Come Dancing show when we saw another side, the light-footed, snake-hipped Matt Baker, (laughs) (laughs) passadobling, rumbering. Um, And this obviously caught everyone's attention, and now he's bagged a job on the one show as well as Country File. So I wanted to find out a bit more about Matt beyond, beyond the dance floor, Matt beyond the one show sofa, Matt the man who sort of grew up on a Durhamdale's farm among sheepdogs and sheep, just find out a bit but what really makes him tick, and particularly how he came to train his very first sheepdog. My first, my very first dog myself was um, was Liz, and that was when I was fourteen. And yeah, she was. That was when I wanted to really start myself with with sheepdogs, and um, and you know, have my, train it myself and all this, that, and the other. And I remember coming home from school, and she was a collie. Yeah, bought a collie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember coming home from school, and I opened up the stable door, and she was in there. And I didn't know it was. I didn't actually know that that was when it was going to start. And Mum had been out and got got this dog, and I came home, and she said, "Oh." you know I've got a surprise for you down in the stables and I went down and opened it up and there was this tiny little collie sat there in the basket and uh, and that was her and, 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 and it was you know she felt that I was at the age where you know I needed to know about responsibility and all of that kind of stuff and having the animal you know as my own as opposed to kind of relying on them all of the time to feed the family animals and um, yeah so instead of getting a hamster I got a, <laughs> a collie so I started doing a little bit of work with Lace and just kind of um, you know, training her up. What I used was I used a football because all, all my experience with dogs beforehand had been through play and messing around and just being out and about. So I thought, I wonder if I can apply the same kind of skills or the same kind of techniques to creating a sheepdog. So I'd have a, I'd have a football and I'd get her running around me and running around me with a football and just go and come by in a way. So you've got come by which is clockwise and you've got anti-clockwise which is away so you'd see that instinct start coming and then I'd send her out and I'd keep the football in the middle and I'd stop her from running into it and running into it and this that and the other and then I'd just put commands to that and then eventually I realised that as I would say away she would be associating that and that's how we did it so I never even introduced it to sheep to start with at all and then I wanted to get her going wider because she was running in a little bit too much and me having sport quite, <laughs> quite a sporty background I'd have all sorts of kind of weird sports equipment around in the barns and all of that so I got a high jump pole off and I put a tennis ball on the end of it and, I, and she was running to try and grab the end of the tennis ball as I would swing around so I'd get her to go further a flanks to get wider so I used her you know a, a high jump pole and a tennis ball and all this that and the other and then what I would do is I'd lift it up high into the air and as soon as I did that I'd shout her to lie down so she so then she'd start lying down as the high jump pole went I mean it's utterly ridiculous so she didn't know, you know, she wouldn't know what, but it's, it's all, it's in them anyway. It's an yeah. instinct that you've got to work with. I mean, that's the beauty of sheepdog trying, and that's what I love so much. 
and then I went to the ATB classes, sort of knowing that she could, um, you know, I didn't want to spoil her. So I didn't want to put her in with sheep or anything like that because I knew I was going to go to these courses. So I wanted to kind of just turn up, but knowing that she was going to listen to me. And uh, so anyway, we walked up there and I had my little wax jacket on and off we went. And uh, it was, and there was all <laughs> loads of farmers and all of that in this little group. And uh, there's me just stood there with my crook. And, uh, and anyway, I, I let her off a lead and I thought, what is she going to do here? What's it going to be like? What is she going to happen and Derek who was there he took he took a little little lead it took, took her by the collar and he walked her up and he said oh, well I'll just I'll just have a little look I said look she's really fresh I said you know she's never seen sheep she but she does I think she knows her commands because I told him and he you know he thought it was quite funny the fact that I'd done it with a football and a high jump ball and everything anyway so uh, he, he, he set her off and he set her and he, he used his experience and put her into positions and moved around and just watched her natural flow on the sheep and um Anyway, he came back and I was like, oh gosh, what did he reckon? And he walked up to me, clipped on the lead and he said, well, he said, there's only two things wrong with that dog. I said, is there? I said, oh no. And I was gutted. I was like, what's wrong with it? He said, one is its name and the other is that it doesn't belong to me. (laughs) That was Matt Baker talking about his childhood growing up on a farm in the Durham Dales. And while Matt was thinking back to his life 20 years ago, we transported his co-presenter Jules Hudson back 40,000 years and challenged him to perfect the time-honoured process of flint napping. As Jules discovered, making Stone Age tools is real experimental archaeology and gives you an insight into our prehistoric ancestors that you can't learn from books. Now, I'm about to start the time-honoured process of flint napping with you, James. Um, We've got a green sheet in front of us. It's covered in bits and pieces of flint, some huge great big nodules. Where is this from? Well, this is, um, all this flint in front of you, I think, is from uh, Norfolk. Um, Norfolk uh, is probably the best, I'd say the best flint in the whole world. Um, I have um, friends who are um, big time sort of flint nappers in America, and they sort of quietly say to me, sort of uh, say it's actually the best. <laughs> uh, well, it's famous uh, because of Grimes Graves. Uh, I mean, yeah, one of the definitely. great flint mines of prehistoric Britain. Yeah, it's, that, it's an amazing scene that goes from sort of Norfolk uh, down, you get some of it down into sort of a um, sort of new forest area. Um, but uh, Norfolk is definitely the place. But it's not, it's not just an ancient art, though, because flint nappers in Norfolk are still very much in demand for walling and house yep, repair and that right, sort of yeah. thing. But we've got a chance to really go back in time to try and create some of the more familiar flint tools that we might recognise in museums and in the archaeological record. That's right, yeah. When, when you look at this flint, um, you know, this really takes me back. This is what we'd, you know, as our ancestors would have seen every day. And what I like about, about flint, it's not just the visual, it's about the sound. If you, if you strike a piece of flint, that, you know, that noise, that noise would have been heard in camps for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. Um, and and, it, and it's, your, it's, your, it's, your, it's your workshop, really, isn't it? It is, I mean, yeah. it, this lump of flint can produce absolutely anything you need exactly, to yeah. hunt, to kill, to prepare food, to chop down trees, to keep them warm. It's, it's your, it's your uh, prehistoric sort of... Um, uh, Swiss Army knife, I think. You know, <laughs> you can create whatever tool you want. Yes, you know. that's a that's, that's a very good way yeah. of putting it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's uh, you know, what, what, when we think about flint tools, it's um, we think of those beautiful hand axes, you know, for butchering sort of woolly mammoths and uh, uh, stone knives and uh, spear points and all those really sort of um, uh, advanced sort of flint napping. But if you take, you know, just a flake of flint like this, this is just a piece that's come off, and. Um, I should, yes. I should probably just explain here. What, what I'm holding in my hand is a piece of flint about, oh, I say two inches square. It's in the rough shape of 
I suppose a, 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 a leaf really, but it's not been worked in any way not at, all, at no. all. One side of it is clearly absolutely razor sharp, and as you say, without any preparation, that will cut anything. That will it? cut that you skin a deer with that, you could butcher a whole deer with that. That's all you need. I mean, even a smaller piece, sort of like that, you could you know, butcher as, any, as many animals as you want. And so, archaeologically, when we find these deposits in the ground, of course, we see just the bits, because yeah. often the tool is long gone. Yeah. But it's interesting to try and reconstruct the flakes to see what it would have produced, what they yeah. would have produced. I, I have friends who are um, sort of archaeologists, and they spend a lot, long time in labs. Gluing bits together. With buckets full of flint, <laughs> trying to find what, what, it, what it looked like at the beginning. So what are we going to try and make today? Well, really, you know, the whole purpose of today is um, we want you to start making arrows. So what I would like to do is sort of show you how to sort of make usable flakes of flint, start scraping arrow shafts and, and um, sort of um, we'll work with a bit more sort of technical sort of pressure flaking to make tools that you can cut notches and things like that. So what we have here is um, the tools of the trade. Um, when you're working stone, you know, flint, there's lots of other stones you know, all around the world, there's things like obsidian and uh, naveculites and jasper and jadeite, jadeite lots, lots of nappable stones but you know in Europe what we had was flint and um, to, to work flint you know it's really hard, hard it's a hard material um, as I said earlier you know Norfolk is the best flint it's um, uh, you can get such beautiful flint that um, when you when you hit it with another stone it, it sounds like a when you're striking a glass well I'm picking no. up this hammer stone here and these I mean it's nice to see yours Worked. Yes. I mean, this is because it is experimental archaeology, yeah, isn't it? For sure. But this is the stuff we find in the ground mm -hmm. when we're digging up prehistoric sites. So you can just imagine, you know, thousands of years ago, as you say, that's the sound yeah. that would have echoed around every settlement yeah, in Northern sure. Europe. Yeah, definitely. The, yeah. No, these, the, the stone you have at the moment is what's called a soft hammer stone. So it's a, it's a stone, but it's um, if you compare it to this one, this is a hard hammer stone pretty much the same size. What I'm holding, it fits very neatly into the palm of my hand. It's about, I don't know, five inches long, about two, three inches wide. And very comfortable, actually. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's got a lovely resonance. Yeah. So the one in your right hand came from um, Aberystwyth. <laughs> uh, if you ever, you know, I know it nice well. It's, it's get a nice ice cream and some hammer stones from Aberystwyth. It's it's just, that's <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Don't tell everybody that no, there'd no. be nothing left on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so what we start off with when we work a tool, uh, when we work stone, we start with hammer stones and then we move on to uh, antler. Antler is what's known as a soft hammer. So you can use things like antler or or bone, uh, even wood sometimes. Yeah. It's um, but this is um. Deer antler. Uh, deer antler. Yep. Uh, this one is actually a, a gift to me from America. This is um, moose. Wow. Um, so if you feel the weight of that. Good heavens. That is, that is actually quite heavy, isn't it? Yeah. So that's only a small part of the moose's antler. So this is this is the sound of Aberystwyth, Aberystwyth. Beach <laughs> on our great big flint nodule. And this is moose. Totally different sound. Yeah. Interesting. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass you the pad. Okay. Now this is essential. If you're going to have a go at this, yeah. make sure you do protect your, your thigh. Very it's, important. Uh, <laughs> it's like breaking yeah. a glass bottle on your leg, isn't it? It really, really is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, safety is really important. Gloves people like to use and goggles, yep. for sure. Yep. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult to get flint out of your eye. Now, you've got this, this piece of flint in your hand there, which I'm going to take now. It's, um, 
It's about uh, what nine inches long, or space about four inches wide. Yep. You've have a, you've got an eye as to, as to how you're working this and what you yep. need to create from it. Yeah. Where would I hit now? Where's the so best place to go? I'm looking at this. What what we have here is one flatter surface and this than the other. Yeah. What we you know when you when you're flint napping, you're looking for problems. It's a bit like a chess game. You know, you just see prob you know how to conquer problems. Yeah. So what I have here is what I call a problem is this big um, sort of. Uh, raised area. Yeah. We want to get this nice and flat like this. So what I need to do is sort of look at the piece and um, try and work out how to remove that. So when you when you hit uh, um, your your flint, you're hitting it on the your the reverse side. The reverse side. Yeah. So what I need to do is create what's known as a platform. Yeah. Now a platform is the area where you where you strike the stone. Um, so here, what I I'll just quickly do for you to create a platform. So you're just taking off one of the edges there. Yeah, and just because you're an oblique angle. I guess what, you, what you're trying to do is to direct the shock waves. That's what it's about. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, exactly. So what I've done is I've I've taken quite an oblique angle, which has created a platform here. So what I need to do now is what's called a braiding, which is just to strengthen the edge. You can either use a special stone, this is a man-made stone, or you can use your hammer stone just to basically shear off all the, the loose bits and pieces. So what we have here now is a nice angle for you to hit here, which yep. should come across and take this off. In theory. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> what I can see as a problem is, you see this this fracture all the way through. Yeah, yeah. What could happen is it could snap in half. But that's flint now. <laughs> <laughs> should, should we see? One way to find out, yeah. So, um, okay, so I'm going to hold it like that. So I'd hold that on your knee like this. Yeah. And strike here, straight down. Straight down. Try not to hit your knee. <laughs> here we go. So it hit that fracture and it totally came off. <laughs> I've so now got a great big lump in my process. <laughs> that really well. Uh, but it just goes to show you how difficult it is. It, it is. You know, it's all of the time you, you think you've got this perfect piece of flint, but yeah. there could be so many different things, fossils. So when that, that energy hits a fossil or a piece of um, uh, a stone that was uh, formed within, in, within it, yeah. uh, that's when the energy gets dispersed and sort of goes out to the edge. But it does make you realise just how important those beautiful things that we do have oh, yeah, from the definitely. period are and how how much time and effort and skill mm. goes into them. It's not a primitive oh, business gosh, no. stone no. tools, is it? No. And what I like to think about is, you know, the person who made that must have sat around some someone in a in a napping area as a young child, you know, just absorbing it. I think, you know, if you look at other cultures, kids in other sort of tribal cultures, they, they don't get spoon-fed like we do in our, our society. We're not told this is how you do it. It's all about observing and watching. And that's how, I think that's how our ancestors must have learned these skills, just by watching and, and listening. That was Jules Hudson on learning how to craft weapons out of stone. And now for a cosier day out. Every Friday at the Three Ways house in Mickleton, seven glistening puddings are paraded in front of a group of salivating guests to the sound of hungry cheers and drumming of spoons on tables. The Pudding Club has been going since 1985, and it's a chance to, sit, to eat seven champion puddings and then walk them off in the Cotswolds. 
As I became progressively more full up with stodgy pudding, I chatted to my fellow pudding club members about their favourite puddings. Okay, I'm here at the pudding club here in Mickleton. And uh, yeah, we're just having dinner um, before we test out the seven puddings that are coming our way. And I'm sat here next to Sylvia Pocock. And uh, so, Sylvia, you've not you've not been to this pudding club before, have you? No, we. Um, I haven't been to the pudding club as the pudding club, but I have stayed at this hotel on several several occasions, um, and always found it um, a lovely place to stay. Uh, we use it as a base and we go out to um, all the lovely gardens round and about. Um, we are actually here um, for the walking. Uh, we're going to do two days walking starting tomorrow, but it's um, just our luck that we've chosen a weekend when the Pudding Club is meeting on this Friday evening. And um, we are trying to have our dinner, but we are also thinking of the seven puddings we have to try. And quite frankly, it's rather daunting. I'm actually a bit frightened. I think if we weren't doing a hike tomorrow, I wouldn't have liked to come to the pudding evening because I'd have felt so guilty eating seven puddings in a row. Yes, I do agree with you. And, and at the moment, I can actually feel sort of seven more lumps appearing on my hips. That's all right, we'll <laughs> work it off. here we come. <laughs> we'll work it off tomorrow, we'll work it off. Right. <laughs> so, Sophie, what did you have for your first pudding? Um, my first pudding was the sticky toffee and date pudding, um, which was very nice because I'm not a sticky toffee and date person, but it was very, very nice. Um, and marks out of ten, probably eight, something like that, but very sweet. So was that a tactic of yours to go for that one first? Uh, no, no tactics at all. I just swanned up to the servery and said, I'll have that one. <laughs> which have to be sticky toffee and dough. See, I, I went for the um, very chocolate pudding, and which I... Like? Oh, that was beautiful. And was I Because chocolate pudding is probably one of my favourites, so I thought I'll go that for that one first, just in case I'm too full later to have right. it. So do um, you suggest I have chocolate pudding next? I'd say, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, and then. probably save the the um, the cold pudding till, till last. Yeah. Charlotte to last. Yeah, yeah. Do you think so. we're going to get to the end of seven puddings? I, I don't think I'll I don't think I'll be able to. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll have to undo the top button of my jeans, I think. Well, as you're only a size six, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and we are going on this fantastic walk tomorrow. Exactly. So we should get rid of it. Yes. Definitely. After a very thrilling breakfast. Right. I'm tucking into my third pudding of the evening, which is the spotted dick, which a few people have said they're not too happy with, but I quite like it. I'll probably give it about an 8 out of 10, but so far, um, the Sussex Pond Pudding is winning, and I've never had the Sussex Pond Pudding before, but it's basically suet on the outside, whole lemons, butter and sugar on the inside, and then as it cooks... The inside forms a pond, so the lemons melt down mm. with all the lovely sugar and butter, and you get well, you do get a pond in the middle. A lovely moist, moist. hot pond. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> 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 well, I think that's been my favourite so far, but I'm seriously doubting that the fact that I can. I don't think I can carry on. That was our very own slightly larger Abigail <laughs> talking about her efforts to eat seven stodgy puddings in one night. Brilliant effort, Abigail. Um, quite envious about possibly the first two puddings, but seven. <laughs> did you manage seven? I couldn't manage seven, but one lady did. I don't know how she did it, 
she had to sort of unbuckle her a loop or two. I did think, she, did she eat any of the? Because she had to eat a main meal first, didn't you? I think that's yeah. the problem. It's not a, a huge main meal, just sort of a sort of light main course, um, a light sort of Yorkshire pudding, yeah, beef, wing, beef Wellington. <laughs> yeah. I think it was. I think it was chicken casserole, from what I remember. Mm. So I suppose it was quite heavy, really. But um, and did you? You didn't have to make the puddings; they made them for you. Oh Is no, that they've right? got they've got a team of chefs there behind the wings sweating it out <laughs> making all these puddings and then they force you to sweat it out as you eat sort of yeah heavy uh, steamed spongy toffee yeah. chocolatey <laughs> jammy doughy. you're making a really yeah, thinking about it <laughs> yeah but, I mean, um, it sounds it sounds great and you went for a walk after to kind of yeah the following day we went for a 10 mile a 10 mile hike which was definitely a waddle. enough <laughs> was it more of a waddle than a hike well, it's very impressive. Joe, have you ever done anything like that? A sort of eat-a-thon and then a walk-a-thon? I have done lots of weekends which kind of revolve around food and then walking. It does make you feel a lot better yeah. knowing... I mean, you can eat a lot more knowing that you're going on a walk the next day. I always, yeah. I always find it takes, with a walk, after a massive lunch, it's half an hour of pain. Yeah. And then suddenly, it's like any walk, it takes half an hour to get into your stride mm. and suddenly you feel all energised and... It's, it's the funny thing. I've always felt that. 20 minutes to half an hour. Mm. Once you push through that first barrier, you can walk for 10, 15 miles. The problem miles. with the, the Cotswolds, though, where, where the pudding club is, is the first half hour is generally up a steep escarpment, isn't it? Yeah. And that that's, that's that was really hard. I yeah. really felt... It's like half an hour to get to a flat top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By then you're fine. But yeah, that was sort of an easy walk after the, first, after the first few miles. The trouble with, with me when I go on long walks is I do bring a huge packed lunch with me. I bring lots of cake and lots of chocolate. And I feel like I'm kind of defeating the object of wanting to get fit by just eating really unhealthy food on the way. It's important to have those little rewards along the route. (laughs) No, I think you're absolutely right. You can't put on weight if you're a big walker. Well, that's it for this month. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as ever, if you'd like to learn more about the traditions and stories behind our landscape or find out what to do in your spare time in the British countryside, pick up a copy of Country Farm magazine or log on to countryfile.com. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now.